How much do you know about pregnancy and alcohol? The reality may surprise you. Alcohol exposure while in the womb may cause fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in unborn children. It may lead to lifelong physical and or neurodevelopmental impairments such as problems with memory, attention, cause and effect reasoning, and difficulties in adapting to situations. For such an impactful disorder, it is rarely spoken about in the popular media. This podcast will take you behind the scenes to chat with the people who understand FASD. This is Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this episode of Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. I'm your host and your friendly neighbourhood podcaster, Kurt Lewis. In today's episode, we will be chatting about the importance of strengths-based approaches to support children with FASD. To help me with this topic today, I have with me Kelly Skorka. She is an occupational therapist, PhD candidate at the University of Queensland. Her research focused on this particular topic, and she has interviewed a number of children and people with FASD, as well as their caregivers, to gain some insight. How's it going, Kelly? Going very well, thank you. How about you? Yeah, not too bad. So, Kelly, your work as an occupational therapist while also you know, undertaking research for your PhD at the University of Queensland, it sounds like you must keep very busy. What do you, yes. <laughs> what do you do to relax? Do you read for pleasure? Do you have like a favourite TV series you like to binge? Yeah, well, favourite TV series is Big Bang Theory, actually. I really enjoy that because it's very light. And I also really enjoy baking sort of mystery kind of books and I have a cat and he is very energetic so he likes me to play with him quite a lot so that's usually what I do on my downtime. (laughs) (laughs) I have one too he's called Max he's a big black cat. Oh wow my cat's named Loki but he's not black a lot of people think he would be a black cat with green eyes but Mm. no he's orange. A nice ginger tom cat or a ginger Mm. one I'm guessing. Yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This might sound like a cheesy kind of question, but, you know, I kind of have to ask, why did you choose to become an occupational therapist? Mm, That's a really good question because I didn't really know a lot about occupational therapy when I was at school, when I was planning what I was going to do. But I was always interested in health and working with children, so I was always going to head in an allied health kind of direction. But my mum then recommended that I look into occupational therapy. One of my cousins had an OT Um, to help with some fine motor skills and she thought it might be something that I'd be quite interested in and she was right (laughs) I really enjoyed it when I went to uni. What part of the work do you enjoy the most if you don't mind me asking? I like the variety we can work with pretty much anyone in pretty much any area we have a lot of different roles yeah that we can work in and Mm. I love working with kids it's a lot of play-based kind of therapy which is fun you know we play a lot of games do a lot of arts and crafts so it's fun for all of us I think. Sounds really must be a fun time at work. Yeah. Play-based, yes. play-based therapy. You're also currently completing your PhD by researching the strengths of children with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, as well as mm. the type of supports they are likely to require in their daily mm. lives. What drew you to this kind of very specific area of research? Yeah, well, as an OT, we're pretty passionate about delivering strengths-based interventions. And so I worked as a clinician for about four years before I went into my PhD because I wanted some clinical experience first. And so during that, I was attending some training on strengths-based interventions as well, which I really enjoyed and I thought was very applicable to pretty much 
anywhere that we work. And when I first went into doing my PhD, I was looking at investigating interventions for vulnerable children and their family. And then one of my advisors suggested that she was setting up an assessment clinic for children with FASD here in Queensland and felt that intervention research would be really applicable up here in Queensland. Mm. So she recommended that I yeah, focus in on FASD. Having previously worked with children with FASD as well, I was really interested in learning more about it and what we can be doing to better support them and their families. So you just went from not knowing a lot about FASD to learning mm. so much to gaining all this kind yeah. of experience. Yeah, because we learned a little bit about it at uni, I guess. We touched base a little bit on it and I had worked with children before but it was more within the foster care system so we were working not specifically because they had FASD but more because they were in foster care. It was a little bit different. So I knew a little bit about it but I didn't have that knowledge base that I have now and I really enjoyed learning about it. It's very, very interesting. What part of it most interests you out of curiosity? What is the the part that draws you in? Mm, I guess it's the very different presentations that these children can have. You know, you can't go, well, every child is exactly the same, which is the same with every diagnosis anyway. Everyone is different because we're all really unique. But, yeah, I think that the different areas that they have supports in and but also the different talents and interests that they have as well is, has been quite interesting to me. Being an OT, being strengths-based, obviously that's what we like to look at as well and so as an area that hadn't been researched very much previously so that's another thing that's really drawing me into working with these children. Kelly you were the first author in a critical review that was published last year it Mm -hmm. focused on the experiences of children with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and their families what were the findings of this particular critical Mm -hmm. review? So we were looking at the research around what life was like for these children and their families, and we found that there's a lot of research around the challenges that children with FASD can experience and and that those challenges can impact on their participation in lots of different daily activities and lots of different environments. So it's not really isolated to a particular area of their life or um, environment that they might be in, so like home, school or community. Because of the, the impacts of the prenatal alcohol exposure, they can have challenges in so many different areas and that's quite well researched. And we also found that caregivers can have impacts on their own health and well-being because they're focusing so much on supporting and caring for their children with FASD. And so sometimes that can be really difficult in them not having the time to look after themselves. There's a lot of research around how challenging it can be for families as a whole, so not just the children, but everyone else as well. But what we also found is that while there is a lot of that research there, there's not a lot looking at the positive experiences of these children and families. So for example, their talents or their interests and their affectionate personalities where there was a little bit of information about it generally came from interviews and it wasn't something that was specifically asked. Researchers weren't specifically asking about the children's strengths, but it was just coming out of what the caregivers were saying. So we felt that that was quite a bit of a gap, particularly given OTs, but in healthcare in general. And there's also a lack of knowledge on the ways in which children's challenges impact their activity performance. Um, So, for example, we know that they can have trouble with managing their emotions, but how does that actually affect their engagement at school or during social activities or at home, for example? So what does it actually look like for them so that we can provide appropriate intervention? So we found a lot of knowledge out there, but we also found a lot of gaps. Why was this such a gap, really? I think that kind of strength-based approaches would there would have been a lot of research on of the strengths as well as the mm. challenges why was there such a gap there 
Yeah, I think that, you know, particularly when we're looking at diagnoses, we want to know where to support children and their families or adults, depending on, on what area you're working in. So we want to know where we want to support them and research therefore focuses a lot on what they're having difficulty with, which makes sense. But there is certainly a lot of research that emphasizes the benefits of a strengths-based approach to supporting individuals in developing skills, participating in activities in sort of any area. So I think that yeah, it's a gap in FASD. It's not necessarily a gap in every other area, but it, it certainly is here. And I think it is more that because these children can have such a variety of challenges and, and the families are going through so much that the research is really targeting what do we need to know, what do we need to be addressing. Yeah, but I think that also this is the time where we really, we, we know a lot of that now and, and now we really need to be focusing on what are their talents? What are their interests? What are their external resources, their social supports that are helping these children and their families to participate as well so we can be harnessing that and bringing that in to address the challenges? I remember I read your, uh, the review. In, in the conclusion, you talk about more holistic approach in supporting mm-hmm. children with FASD. What does this approach mean for children with FASD, with their families, health professionals? What does this holistic approach look like? Yeah, and that's a really good question because I think that it's quite an important point that we found from my paper, we found a lot of other people were saying that as well. So obviously strengths-based is one part of that because if we're focusing only on the challenges that these children are having, then we're not looking at them as a whole person. We're only looking at one specific part of them. So we need to know who they are in entirety really. And then also knowing who the child is in the context of their family. So a number of families that I've been interviewing since the critical review have emphasised the fact that they need support as a whole, as a family unit, not just individual therapy for the child. So that's, again, understanding what the child is experiencing within their context and also what their families are experiencing. There's been research around the effectiveness of helping individuals improve their skills within their usual activities and environments. So rather than just focusing on developing a specific skill in, for example, a clinic environment, how are they using those skills in their normal activities or what are the different environments like for them? Because some children will find school environment might be the best environment for them because it's so structured, whereas other children will find the home environment's best because that's where they feel safest. So what is it like in those different environments? And that's called a context-focused approach. So strengths-based and context-focused approaches are are really important in being holistic. And then we've also found that these children, because of the many different challenges that they have, they often require support from multiple different allied health professionals, medical professionals, education services. But interventions that have been researched are often delivered by a single professional And we know that from research that interprofessional approaches to intervention, so all of those different services working together and collaborating to support a family is really beneficial because it supports the continuity of care and it makes intervention more streamlined and a lot easier for families. So that's a bit of a gap that's going on there as well. And then also around the interventions at the moment, not only are they delivered by a single professional, but they're often not delivered within the child's natural context. They might be delivered in a clinic environment. You know, they're all really important. And the interventions that have been researched have certainly been very beneficial and they're excellent. It's not standalone, I guess. You know, those single interventions on their own are not going to improve everything for the child. They're going to help in certain areas. So in order to support the child and the family as a whole, we need to be looking at 
their strengths, their talents, their interests, their context, themselves as a family unit and everyone working together. So not just one single health professional but a number of different professionals from different backgrounds. Yeah, if that's what the child needs, of course. Mm, so if they yeah. only need one professional, that's different. But a lot of the time they will need OT and speech therapy and psychology and they might need support services at school and they might need to be seeing their paediatrician. And if we're all working in isolation, then that can be very challenging for families. You know, some of the things that I hear when I'm in schools or even just talking to families is that all of the different health professionals are providing lots of different strategies which is great, but if, you know, if each of us provide three different strategies, that's a lot of strategies that the child and family or teacher have to be trying to implement, and that's really difficult for them. So if we're working together, then we can be all using the same strategies so it's consistent across environments, which makes it a lot more easier for children to understand what we're trying to do and, and how this helps. And then we're always collaborating and communicating with each other so that we're all on the same page, we're all supporting the child and family's goals. How would you go about having this very collaborative approach among uh, if the if the child needs a collaborative approach? How do you go about you know implementing it? Well, for my particular PhD, I'm actually developing a framework about that. So I'm developing a framework to support access to services and and to support that interprofessional collaboration to practice. So that's what I'm moving into looking at now is how can we, like you said, implement that in actual practice because we know that it works in theory, but how are we going to be able to to do that in real life? Because this is kind of a pretty key point because I know I've chatted to a number of carers of children with FASD and they, they feel a lot of that, the pressure is put on them to help implement mm. strategies. They're the ones who have to consult with all these health professionals mm. and implement strategies and all that. So a lot of pressure is put on them to do that, to be, you know, the advocates, mm. the the person who consults with this one, that one. I imagine a unified approach with the, help, mm. with the professionals as well as the parents massively take pressure off parents slash carers who have to be all these different things advocate and health professional and carer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because these families are doing so much, you know, these carers are amazing with all of the support that they're giving their child and, and they're looking for everything out there that can help their child and their family as a whole. And absolutely, like you said, there's all that pressure on them having to do all the advocating for themselves. And that's one of the big reasons why we want to have a framework out there that's easier. Mm. So everyone is on the same page. Everyone can follow it. And yeah, it can just help make that access to services a lot smoother and also help professionals work together to support the family all as one team, really, rather than lots of individuals. Just wondering, you've interviewed a number of people for your research. What were the biggest strengths you found that people with FASD had? It's really interesting. Obviously, everyone's unique. So, you know, it's not like there's a particular interest that everyone has. However, from the adolescents that I was interviewing, art and photography and videography came out quite strongly as something that those particular adolescents really enjoyed. And it really helped them to feel more confident and comfortable doing different activities. Also, different sports has come out as quite a talent and, and strong interest for these children. So I found that quite interesting myself, the art and sports sides. But of course, I only had a small sample size because I'm doing such a deep form of analysis. So there would be absolutely other children out there who have different talents and, and interests 
men's drinks as well, but they were the ones that were really coming out from my interviews. And then another thing that was also quite important that was coming out was the support and the strong relationship with the caregivers and sometimes with friends as well, how much those social supports really helped the child. Caregivers in particular could help them regulate when they were feeling really overwhelmed because when things are challenging for anyone, but also, you know, in particular for these children, if activities are are challenging, then they might want to avoid them because it just gets too overwhelming. They get too stressed about trying to do something that's really hard. So having those activities that they are really interested in or those topics that they're interested in helps them feel a little bit calmer, but also having their carers or their close friendships to just help them regulate and and take over for them a little bit and saying, okay, we're getting really overwhelmed. Let's do this instead to help us calm down because sometimes they just can't think about themselves, which is the same with all of us. You know, when we all get really distressed, like we're not really thinking either. We, I usually need someone to just step in and go, okay, Kelly, why don't we do this instead? And so, yeah, I think that that was, that was really important. That was coming out from my interviews as well. Why is it important to incorporate the strengths of children with FASD into stuff like therapy, learning, their daily activities? Why is that important? Well, centering activities around a child's talents or interests and any child, any person really, can help them to be more motivated and also more engaged in the task. And it really can enhance their self-confidence. So like I said, you know, if they're feeling really anxious or stressed about activities that are overwhelming for them, they might avoid them. They might have a meltdown because they're so distressed. Whereas if it's something that there's a bit of interest in there, so for example, if they're really interested in art, then if you're incorporating that into the daily routines or into the academic activities, or if they're you know really good at gymnastics or ball sports or something and they can go out and, and do that as a bit of a break, that can help them to calm down. They can use those activities to manage their anxiety as well. But something that, you know, that they're talented at as well, that gives them that confidence when they're often participating in activities that are challenging for them. So it's good to have that balance that they may not always feel in their day-to-day life. It's really important. It's really helpful with that motivation, that engagement, but just so much about managing that anxiety and helping them to feel confident and comfortable in different activities and environments. Kelly? This is somewhat of a personal question, but I'm wondering if your detailed research into FASD and the effects of prenatal alcohol exposure have changed your attitude towards alcohol? And if so, is this something you have shared with your friends and family in a a social setting? Yeah, it's quite interesting. It hasn't changed my attitude towards alcohol purely because I'm not, I've never been much of a drinker myself. So it hasn't changed my attitude in that way. And, and of course, as a health professional during my university years as well, we were taught about the impacts of alcohol prenatally as well. So starting this research project, I did have a little bit of that background already, but I found that getting into that deeper knowledge around it It's been really interesting to find out about those real impacts of alcohol on babies prenatally. And it's also quite confronting what the effects can be as well. And I certainly do talk about my research with my family and with my friends. And I think that this has helped me be a bit more aware, even though I'm not much of a drinker myself, we are in a society where we enjoy our alcohol. So I think that this has certainly made me more aware of being supportive towards 
other women who are thinking about being pregnant or who are pregnant in terms of alcohol use. Obviously, I, I don't drink, so I can be someone who can be that person who doesn't drink with them because if you're out and you're pregnant and everyone else is drinking, there can be a lot of that social pressure or feeling awkward or uncomfortable or different from everyone else. So talking about this, about this research with family and friends and my colleagues as well, I think it's helped me and hopefully other people be a bit more aware of being those support people for other women who are yeah, in, in that stage where they want to be avoiding or reducing their alcohol intake. I was just wondering, when you imparting that message, when you're talking about it, what were the kind of responses? Did you face any like negativity or any stigma, you, th- you think? I haven't experienced it personally with my, so a lot of my friends are health professionals anyway, so we do have that additional training. And then my family, just in general, again, we're just not really big drinkers anyway. I do know that my mum often talks to me about when she was pregnant with me, the advice that a lot of her friends were given was that it's okay to have a glass of wine in the evenings, particularly because it helps the mother be less stressed and that's good for the baby. She didn't drink during pregnancy, but she certainly knows other women who did because of that advice and that messaging. It's different now, but not everyone is aware of it. Not everyone knows the impacts of alcohol and the fact that the guidelines are to avoid alcohol when pregnant if possible. So I think that within my family and my friends, talking about my research is is very interesting to them, but it's not necessarily surprising. But I do know that it, it can be very surprising for other people as well. And if you are in you know those social situations where there's a lot of pressure to drink alcohol, that would be really difficult and really stressful mm. um, for other people. I mean, it's insane when, you, when you're looking back now that people got given that kind of advice. They were advised to drink alcohol in the afternoons to keep themselves calm while mm. pregnant. It just seems insane right now. We have the evidence that alcohol can affect, negatively affect an unborn mm. child really interesting how much the research and the knowledge has changed but I also think it's interesting that whilst in you know the health professional world we are usually quite aware of that new research I don't think it's as well known in society in in general so I think that that is quite an issue you know these women and, and their partners as well you know if they don't know about the impacts of alcohol or if they've heard previously with my mum I've heard that in in her day having a glass of wine was acceptable. If if you're hearing that from other generations as well, it can be very confusing and you might be drinking not knowing what the effects could be on your child. And and that's really hard for women as well Mm. and their partners. It's difficult for families. So I think it's really important that we do have um, more knowledge out there in the community, which is, you know, why I certainly talk about my research to other people as well and they can talk about it to start to spread the message as much Mm. as possible. That's always been the policy of this podcast, to spread that particular message, no mm. alcohol while pregnant. Uh, now, time for my last question. It's, it's a big one. It's the one I ask all my guests. Do you think there is more our listeners could be doing as individuals or we could be doing as a whole society to help children with FASD and their families? Mm. I think it is a really big question. And I think that absolutely increasing the awareness in the community is probably the biggest thing that we can be doing because if we don't have that knowledge, if we don't have that awareness, then nothing really is going to change. 
yeah, that's a really important thing, just talking about it, but being really sensitive as well. So we're not judging anyone and we shouldn't be judging anyone, you know, what they're doing during their pregnancy. Just we're giving women and their families the advice and the knowledge about what's happening in a very non-judgmental way because that's not what we're trying to do. We're just trying to let you know about what's going on and what can be happening. And I think that that's a really big thing that society can be doing as a whole is being non-judgmental and, and really reducing those the social pressures for women thinking about becoming pregnant or who are pregnant to drink. Again, we need to have the knowledge in order to reduce that social pressure. But just in general, we should be not pressuring anyone to be drinking or doing anything that they don't want to do or feel uncomfortable doing just because the rest of society is doing it. Also, really providing support to women who are pregnant around their alcohol consumption. So, like I said, you know, talking about it, but also just being a support person, if you're going out and everyone else is drinking, like I said before, and one person isn't drinking, that can be really difficult. So having a partner or a friend or someone else to be not drinking with them can be really comforting. And also, you know, helping them find other ways to manage their stress because pregnancy can be stressful. And given the previous information was that you have a glass of wine to reduce your stress, what else can we be doing that's a bit safer for the baby? And of course, in terms of my research, the really important thing for me is is seeing individuals with FASD as unique individuals. So for these children out there, you know, we talk a lot about supporting the women who are pregnant or becoming pregnant, but in terms of those children as well out in the world, it is difficult for them. What they're going through is challenging, but they have so many positives as well. And they have things that they're really talented in, that they're really interested in. They are a whole unique person as much as all of the rest of us are. And it's really good. I think for everyone to recognize that as well and to, yeah, to be really aware and supportive of what they can do, not just what they can't do. Kelly, I'd honestly like to thank you for coming on the podcast and great knowledge you've shared with us today. And I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. I've really, I'm really passionate about this and I've really enjoyed talking about it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. Please tune in next week for another episode of Our Little Podcast. If you like this podcast episode, then please show your support by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. All rights reserved. For more information about FASD, then please go to www.nofasd.org.au.